Heavenly Father, creator of all things, master of all time and space, all-knowing and ever-loving God, we praise your holy name. You are worthy of our praise. We praise you and we glorify you today in this place. You are worthy of our praise. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this place. Thank you for granting to us the privilege to gather as your people, to worship together and to feed on your word. Thank you for being our perfect provider and attentive shepherd. Thank you for your promise to never leave us nor forsake us. We are never alone, and in you we have all that we could ever need. Father, we approach your heavenly throne knowing that you hear us. Today, Lord, we ask that you would allow us to rest in this moment and to receive what you have prepared for us. Allow us to shed the cares of our world. Allow us to turn our hearts and our minds to you. Allow us to put aside the worries of today and tomorrow. Allow us to not think of the dark valley, the sickness, the grief, the uncertainty and fear. Allow us to only think of your love for us, your constant care and provision, and your never wavering, always there, tender care. Allow us to follow as you lead us to green pastures and still waters. In this place, at this time, precious Jesus, speak to us through your word and bring us to a new understanding of what it means for us to follow you, our tender shepherd. We love you, Lord. And it is to you and in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen and amen. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, through chapter 12, verse 8. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Bernard, would you come up, please, and teach us from your word? Well, thank you, Dave and Barb, and thank you for that lovely prayer uh, that you prayed for us. Well, good morning, all. Good to see you all. So the summer break is almost over, and with it, the end of R&R, the end of rest and relaxation, uh, soon we will all be back to work, 
whether that be in the classroom or the office, whether that be real or virtual, or in some other space doing real work with our hands. So I've juxtaposed work and rest because that's how we usually think of these two words, as opposites. But what is rest? Uh, scientifically speaking, and I know I've got plenty of you there who've done science classes, uh, rest, true rest is achieved at absolute zero, uh, where all motion stops. There is no work. But that's not a very appealing state at zero K. Or we could cite the laws of thermodynamics. But uh, I'll let the British comedy duo Flanders and Swan do so in their song. This is a song I heard many, many times in my youth. The first and second laws of thermodynamics. Heat is work and work's a curse and all the heat in the universe is gonna cool down because it can't increase. Then there'll be no more work and there'll be perfect peace. That's entropy, man. <laughs> so is that what rest is? the end state of the universe when it has run down and lost all its energy. Now we long for rest, but what actually is it? Well, my idea of rest on a Sunday after preaching is to go and cycle up Montebello Road, but that's not for everyone. That's not many people's idea of rest. Rest might be the absence of work, but certain types of work are actually good for us. In Pixar's 2008 movie, Wally. Uh, the residents of the starship Axiom are in an advanced state of rest, but also in an advanced state of atrophy. And so their rest is doing them no good. We hunger for rest, we hunger for R&R, &R, for rest and relaxation, but this means different things to different people. I grew up in rural Thailand during the Vietnam War, and on the way to our local train station, 50 kilometers away, we passed an airbase uh, used by the US Air Force. And outside the gates had grown up a community dedicated to catering to the R&R needs of the base. Uh, you can imagine, well, no, don't imagine, don't go there. <laughs> uh, as we passed, we called it Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we would take the train to Bangkok where we stayed at the mission home and not far away uh, was Patpong, the notorious, infamous red light district that grew up to cater to the provide R&R for people and troops from all over East and Southeast Asia. But our family would go to the beach. And uh, today this beach is lined with large hotels and that to me does not look restful at all. But when I was young, there were no hotels, no large buildings, just endless sand. That's me and my sisters. It was indeed a restful paradise for both kids and parents. It was a wonderful place for R&R. &R. So is that what R&R &R is? Either bars and brothels or sandy beaches? And then here at PBCC, our women's ministry has its own R&R &R events, relationships and reflection. Opportunities for spiritual refreshment together. So what is the biblical concept of rest? Well, our call to worship was Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And this pastoral image is very appealing. And Psalm 23 is universally beloved Psalm. 
Now in Scotland, where I'm from, Psalm 23 in the metrical Psalter is the most popular hymn in the country. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. We sang it at the graveside as we committed both my parents in turn to the grave. Requiem eternum, donna eis, domine. Eternal rest grant them, O Lord. And then our scripture reading included these famous words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How we long for rest, for the shepherd God to refresh our souls, for Jesus, the good shepherd, to replace our burdens with his light burden. God intends to give his people rest, but will we accept this gift? Now, three weeks ago, we looked at uh, Hebrews chapter three, and we saw that the Israelites, whom Moses had led out of slavery in Egypt, refused to enter into the promised land. Why? Because of their anxious fears that would not subside. They refused to enter into God's rest, and in response, the Lord swore an oath, they shall never enter my rest. Now, Israel's failure was manifold. Rebellion, sin, disobedience, and at the root of all this lay the sin of unbelief or lack of faithfulness. They failed to complete their journey into God's rest, and all died in the wilderness, all except for two, Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful. They did have faith. They persevered and entered. So today we turn to chapter four, where the major theme continues to be entrance into God's rest. Second half of chapter three and the beginning of the first half of chapter four act as two panels of the same topic, entrance into God's rest. And our text today is Hebrews chapter four, verses one through 11. And uh, you've got the text on your worship sheet you picked up. So verse one, reading from the NIV. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So the therefore anchors us back into chapter three. Entering God's rest, this phrase occurs eight times in just these 11 verses of chapter four. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. The rebellion and lack of faithfulness by the wilderness generation did not make God cancel his purpose to bring his people into rest. That purpose remains, and it is here characterized as a promise. But the preacher issues another warning, including himself as usual. And it's a strong warning. It's stronger than let us be careful, as the NIV renders it here. He actually says, let us fear. Let us be afraid, lest any of you be found to have fallen short. So why does he fear? What is he afraid of? Well, he is aware of the extreme consequences of failing to finish the journey of faith, of falling short like the wilderness generation, 
due to a loss of faith and a loss of faithfulness. And he gives a reason for this fear. We also have had the good news proclaimed to us. One could render this, we too have been evangelized. The dear brothers and sisters to whom he is writing have heard and received the evangel, the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ. The risen and exalted son has entered God's presence where he has provided purification for sins and has sat down at God's right hand, crowned in glory and honor. This is good news indeed. Why then the fear? Well, the wilderness generation also had the good news proclaimed to them. It was not the gospel about Jesus, but it was good news nonetheless. It was the good news that God was going to liberate his people from harsh slavery in Egypt, bring them to himself, and then bring them into the land promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush to commission him. And so Moses returned to Egypt, where he and Aaron told the Hebrews all God's words, all his good news. And we read in Exodus 4 that the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. But their anxious fears quickly returned and they complained. Then on Passover night, Moses told them the Lord's plan to strike the Egyptians but spare his people that very night. More good news. The initial response was the same. Exodus chapter 12, the people bowed their heads and worshiped. But soon their anxious fears returned again and again and again. Again and again, Moses proclaimed good news from God, but again and again, the people quickly turned to grumbling, to unbelief, to disobedience, until instead of bowing down to the Lord, they bowed down to a golden calf. Now, lest we be too harsh on that generation, we too are prone to anxious fears that will not subside. As we look around us, there is much to make us anxious, make us fearful, angry, resentful, discouraged, disillusioned, depressed, and on and on. And in the end, the message that they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Where obeyed could also be translated heard. They heard the good news, but they never really heard it. They heard but they didn't listen. They heard, but they never took it to heart. And as a result, the good news did them no good. They didn't trust God, whence came this good news. They didn't consider him to be trustworthy and reliable, and as a result, they themselves were untrustworthy and unreliable. They did not join the community of faith. Who was in that community of faith? Well, Moses, for a start, whom twice in the early verses of chapter three were told was faithful. Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies who assured the people that God would be with them as they entered the land. The community of faith stretched back to include the patriarchs to whom God had promised the land. It stretched forward to include Joshua and David. 
It included all of the Old Testament saints who are included in Hebrews chapter 11, all who lived by faith. But the wilderness generation refused to join this great cloud of witnesses. And the community of faith is yet larger. It includes those to whom the preacher has addressed this sermon. And it includes us today. We have joined ourselves to those who have heard by faith. So the preacher sees one large community of faith that stretches across both testaments, old and new. And the preacher knows that his audience has responded better than the wilderness generation, verses three through five. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. We who have believed, they had truly heard the good news proclaimed to them and had received it in faith. They had joined the community of faith and as a result, they are entering God's rest. Now the verb here is present and it's ongoing. They have started to enter that rest they're in the process of entering that rest, but entering is not yet complete. Entering God's rest encompasses the whole time from initial response of faith through to our death or to the Lord's return. It is the entire period of our walk in faith, of our spiritual journey. And then in verses 3b to 5, the preacher draws from God's word in scripture but his reasoning's a little hard to follow. First, he repeats the quotation from Psalm 95, verse 11. God's oath that the wilderness generation would never enter his rest. But what is God's rest? Well, the preacher goes far back in time to the beginning. He alludes to Genesis chapter two, verse two, that God's works have been finished since the creation of the world. And then he quotes that very text, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. God has been in rest ever since he completed creation. The first six days, each had an ending. There was an evening and a morning, but not the seventh day. This day in which God entered his rest is unending. And finally, the preacher returns to Psalm 95:11. God's oath, they shall never enter my rest. So God has been in his rest from the seventh day, and he invited the Israelites who he brought out of Egypt to join him in rest, but they refused. So is the pathway to God's rest still open? Yes, it is, as we see in verses six through eight. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. 
So the promise of entering God's rest still stands. It still remains. That was verse one. And now we remain, read that it remains. It still remains for some to enter that rest. Why does it remain? Well, because those who were formerly evangelized, those who had had the good news proclaimed to them, did not enter because of their disobedience, which flowed from their unbelief, their lack of faith. But God still wants people in his rest. He is determined to bring people into his rest. And therefore, he has appointed a day today. And again, the preacher quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, that he had used in chapter 3. Today is the day to hear God's voice and enter into his rest. Today is the day of invitation, invitation into God's rest. Now David, the author of the Psalms, or most of them, wrote this because rest had not yet been achieved. Joshua was unable to bring God's people into rest. And so God has appointed this other day. And that day was open in David's time. Now, there was a brief moment when it did seem that entrance into God's rest was achieved. This was during the reign of David's son, Solomon. The Lord promised David that he would have a son who would be a man of rest. And he would fulfill David's desire to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And in his prayer of dedication of the temple, Solomon praised God, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. So the people were in their resting place, the promised land, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And in their midst, God was in his resting place, as symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. And the king was at rest. So rest was a place. The Lord in the temple, the king in the palace, and the people in the land. God was in the midst of his people, in fulfillment of his promise, I will be your God, you'll be my people, and I will dwell with you. So rest was in the presence of the Lord. Alas, this did not last long. Solomon's heart was led astray quickly. He stopped hearing God's word, and eventually the Lord removed his presence from the temple. He removed the people from the land. What then of God's rest? Would it be recovered by putting the ark back in the temple? Would it be recovered by putting the people back in the land? Well, Jesus' invitation to come to himself to find rest that we read at the end of Matthew chapter 11 is immediately followed by two accounts of what Jesus did on a Sabbath day under the watchful gaze of the Pharisees. Uh, we heard the first account. It's immediately followed by a second one. And in that first account, his disciples picked some grain and ate it. In the second account, set in a synagogue, a man with a shriveled hand has it restored. And in both cases, the Pharisees were upset. Jesus told them in words that we heard, something greater than the temple is here. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The temple was the place of God's rest. The Sabbath was the day of God's rest. And in one fell swoop, Jesus transferred both the spatial and the temporal spheres of rest onto himself. He, greater than the temple, was where God was present on earth. He, sovereign over the Sabbath, was where rest was to be experienced. He placed himself at the center of rest and invited the weary 
and the burdened to come to him to find rest as his gift. Well, this was too much for the Pharisees. We read at the end of the second Sabbath account that they went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now today, the day of invitation and rest was open in the days of Jesus. It was open in Jesus himself. The invitation was now to come to Jesus. And it was open in the days of the Hebrews, of the book of Hebrews. As the preacher wrote his sermon, the promise of entering God's rest remained. That was verse one. It remained for some to enter into his rest, verse six. Because God spoke about a later day, the day for hearing his voice and entering into his rest. What day is this? Today. It is the day for hearing the greater word which God has spoken to us in these last days through his son. Now the preacher and his listeners have been evangelized with the good news of Jesus, this greater word. They had heard God's voice and not hardened their hearts. Today is still today, the day for hearing the Lord's voice and responding in faith. The day of taking the first step and entering into God's rest. The day for coming to Jesus. The invitation remains open for us. The preacher concludes in verses 9 and 10, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. So there are now three things that remain, we've read of in this passage. The promise of entering God's rest remains, verse 1, it remains for some to enter into that rest, verse 6, and now a third thing remains, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, verse 9. Well, this word sabbatismos translated here and in most English verses, versions of Sabbath rest occurs only here and it's a very rare word. We should probably better understand it as a Sabbath celebration. It is what you do on the day of rest, how you keep, observe and celebrate the Sabbath. So it is a celebration life that is lived in God's rest. And since God's rest ultimately is unending, it is the unending life of celebration lived in God's presence. Now, I'm from Scotland where the two words Sabbath and celebration do not belong together. <laughs> Sabbath, as Sunday is still referred to in uh, various parts of the country, is a dour, solemn day. Sabbath is kept. And Sabbath is kept by keeping yourself from doing all sorts of things that are done on other days anything that adds any whiff of enjoyment to it. Although uh, with the rapid secularization of the country, this is uh, rapidly changing. But in Judaism, Sabbath is a celebration. We see this, for example, in the lighting of the candles at the beginning of the Sabbath meal, as beautifully portrayed in Fiddler on the Roof. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that scene. And then some branches of Judaism have long understood Sabbath to be a token of eternity. So Sabbath is enjoyed as a foretaste of the age to come. Now celebration is appropriate because the one entering into God's rest also rests from his or her works, just as God rested from his works. So what are these works? Well, for God it is his works of creation, 
But he continues to be active in the work. There is a sense in the world, there's a sense in which he is working, but he's doing so in a state of unending rest. And he invites us to enter that rest. And when we receive the good news of Jesus, we begin our, we begin our entrance into God's rest in Christ. But we have not finished that entrance. We are still engaged in our works. What works are these? Well, these works are not anything we do to try to earn our salvation. That is entirely by grace as we respond in faith to hearing God's voice, hearing the good news of Jesus that is being proclaimed to us. We already are God's people. So our works are the works we do while faithfully following Jesus. They include our own work of following Jesus, and they include our work of helping others to follow Jesus. So, for example, Paul praised the Thessalonian Christians for, quote, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of our earthly pilgrimage, we will enter fully into God's presence, into his rest, and the works of our pilgrimage will be complete. Then the preacher closes this section with a final exhortation, which as usual comes with a warning. Verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So this exhortation and warning forms an inclusio with the exhortation and warning in verse one. They bookend this section. Making every effort to enter rest seems contradictory seems an oxymoron. Striving seems opposed to resting, but it is not so when we correctly see the preacher's view of the Christian life. We have already started entering into rest, but we need to be diligent to keep moving forward in our entering. How do we do so? In Hebrews, it's quite simple. The preacher lays out two things to do. Firstly, by following Jesus, and secondly, by encouraging one another to follow Jesus. If we keep our gaze on Jesus, looking to him as our example, we will not be led astray by the example of the wilderness generation that responded to God's voice with disobedience and unbelief. And repeatedly throughout this sermon, the preacher urges us to look to Jesus. We see Jesus in chapter two. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, beginning of chapter three. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, considering him in chapter 12. In the hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting, there's a lovely line. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee as thy beauty fills my soul. So we gaze on Jesus. And if we take our gaze off of him, that's when we are in danger of drifting away or of coming short or of falling. One night, the disciples were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee during a storm. Just before dawn, Jesus came to them walking on the water and he bid Peter, come. Peter started to walk on the water towards Jesus and as long as he looked at Jesus, he was fine. But when he saw the wind, his anxious fears arose, and he was the one who subsided. He began to sink. Jesus bids us gaze upon him 
and come to him. And again, this is why I've called this series Christ Before Us. The preacher constantly places Christ before us to be the object of our gaze. But also, Christ has gone before us as our pioneer, as our forerunner. He has faithfully completed his journey and has entered fully into God's rest, into God's presence. And from there, at God's side, he bids us come to him. Now, as we follow Jesus, there will be many trials and temptations. Coming to Jesus does not solve all of our problems. Anxious fears will try to arise. But like Peter, the answer is to look to Jesus. This is part of why we gather on Sundays, to renew and refresh our gaze on Jesus, because our gaze has been pulled elsewhere during the week, because our anxious fears have risen up. And then we don't walk this path alone. The preacher again and again urges us to help one another, encourage one another daily, we read in verse chapter three. Chapter 10, let us consider how we may spur one another onward towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So we do this by gathering on Sunday mornings. We can also do this uh, throughout the week in connection groups. And later this month, there will be two connection Sundays where we can learn about such groups and avail ourselves of these opportunities to encourage one another in our spiritual journey. And the preacher is confident, despite all of his warnings, that if his dear brothers and sisters keep paying attention to Jesus and keep encouraging one another, they will successfully complete this journey and they will enter fully into God's rest. Now, it is popular to say that we rest in the finished work of Christ. And it is true that he cried out on the cross, it is finished. But in the theology of Hebrews, Christ's work is not finished. As our great high priest, he exercises an ongoing ministry on our behalf. He is able to help us in our trials and in our weaknesses. And so we bring to him all of our anxious fears so that they may subside under his loving gaze. And in just a few verses time, the preacher is gonna say this, chapter four, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So during this time of our earthly pilgrimage, our rest comes not from having never being in a time of need, not from never having anxious fears, but from our looking to Jesus, who is able to help us and from whom we can receive mercy and find grace. We do not yet have access physically to God's presence that lies at the end of our journey of faith when we shall fully enter into God's rest, into his presence. But meanwhile, we do have access to his presence through Jesus, the son of God, this great high priest who has fully entered into God's rest and presence. We are his and he knows us. Through him we receive mercy, we find grace, because we continue to be in a time of need. 
And we're in need of bidding our anxious fears subside. So the preacher is confident that if his listeners, if his brothers and sisters will just keep their eyes on Jesus and help one another, encourage one another, they will faithfully fulfill the journey. Wherein then lies our assurance of salvation, if there is this danger of falling? Well, my assurance comes not from the fact that I have begun the journey, that I've started to enter into God's rest. The Hebrews in Egypt started out well, as we read, bowing down and worshiping the Lord in response to the good news proclaimed by Moses. But it didn't last. They didn't finish the journey. My assurance comes from looking to the one who has successfully completed that journey into God's rest. Jesus Christ, my faithful high priest, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. My own history is too weak to give me assurance. But through Jesus, I approach God's throne of grace with confidence, there to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need throughout the days of my earthly pilgrimage. He is my assurance. I invite the band to come up so I wrap up here. At the end of chapter 12, we're given a brief glimpse of the end of our pilgrimage. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The myriad angels are already in joyful assembly. And we will join them there, for there remains a sabbatismos, a celebratory life lived in God's presence. Well, I close with a prayer of John Henry Newman, which some of you may recognize. The Lord support us all the day long of this troublous life until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes, the busy world is hushed, the fever of life is over, and our work is done. Then, Lord, in thy mercy, grant a safe lodging, a holy rest, and peace at the last through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.